So today we'll be talking about liver, pancreas, and spleen. All right, let's settle down. And the classification of these organs are accessory organs. I don't like to think of them as accessory organs because it sounds like something like a briefcase that you carry around. But without them, you cannot actually survive. So here you have the objectives. All right. And this is what we're going to be talking about. So firstly, we're going to start with the liver. So here you can see the liver placed in the right hypochondriac region. So from your earlier anatomy lectures, you would realize that the men can be divided into nine quadrants. Here, this region here is going to be called your right hypochondriac region. This is going to be epigastric region. And the liver sits in this position right here. It is the largest visceral organ in the body. As I said, it's located in the right hypochondrial region. And because it is actually below the ribs, as you can see here, it is very, very prone to a lot of damage. So normally, in emergency situations, what we find is that the liver, and we're going to talk about the spleen in a little while, as the lecture continues, is one of the organs that is most likely damaged. So when you get down to the cadaver lab, you would realize that we have this structure here. So the liver will be divided into two lobes, the right lobe and the left lobe. So on the anterior surface, we can say, based on anatomical landmarks, that the liver can be divided into a right bigger lobe and a small left lobe by this ligament here, which is called the falciform ligament. And you would remember from the embryology lectures that the falciform ligament was the remnants of which mesentery? Ventral mesentery. Okay. In its free border, inferior border, we have this ligament here, which is called the ligamentum teres hepatis. Everybody remembers what is it the remnant of? The umbilical, the umbilical vein. Right? Now, as we would see in the next slide, the liver is covered by peritoneum. So mostly covered by peritoneum. There are two places where it's not covered by peritoneum. It will be the fossa of the gallbladder as well as the porta hepatis. We're going to talk about the bare area in a little while, and we're going to see why that area is not attached or covered with peritoneum. So these are the areas of the liver that you should remember that are not covered by peritoneum. So this is what it looks like in fresh. So we have a cadaveric specimen as well as a cartoon diagram. And when you go down to the lab, you'd realize that we have, or we have taken away the anterior abdominal wall. Here you can see the liver. Here's the falciform lig ligament, the right lobe, the left lobe. You're going to see a little bit of stomach. This is the stomach right here, duodenum, a little bit of gut. You have the small intestines. You're going to have the large intestines in the periphery. Now, one of the other things that you would realize is that those cadavers which have the gallbladder, the entire area is stained green. And that green color is because you have bile in that particular area. Here you can see the greater omentum. Now, sometimes what has to happen is that we need to take a liver biopsy. And because of the close association of the lung to the liver, what needs to happen is that the doctor would ask the patient to hold their breath in full expiration. And what happens is that the needle can be actually inserted in the 9th and 10th intercostal space in the mid-axillary line. And that helps to prevent damage to the pleural cavity, uh, the lungs. Now, this, is be this becomes very important because liver is one of the organs, as you would realize from your other lectures, it is one of the structures or one of the first structures where metastatic cancer can actually seed from the pelvis or even the colonic structures. So one of the last things to go is the liver, or I should say one of the first places that cancer metastasize is to the liver. And because the liver is very important, you can just imagine what can happen once you have clinical manifestations due to metastatic cells seeding in the liver. So that's why we're going to study all of the anatomy. So looking at the surfaces of the liver, you would realize that now we have taken that liver. So in the previous slide, we have actually seen an, an sorry, 
in the previous side, we are seeing an anterior view. Now I'm going to take that liver and I'm going to flip it. And you're going to realize that we're going to see the posterior surface. Now the underside of the liver, there are two surfaces. There is a diaphragmatic surface and a visceral surface. Now the visceral surface, as you can see here, once it's visceral, it's going to be covered by peritoneum. And you have the diaphragmatic surface, which is actually attached to the diaphragm. Now we're going to talk about the ligaments that actually hold the liver in place, as well as the other structures which help support that liver in its position. However, there are some clinical entities that we need to talk about before we go on. I've actually alluded to some of them before. I said I talked about liver trauma being the liver being a very vulnerable organs because of the ribs, as I said, you can have them damaging the liver by piercing it. And once you realize that there is piercings of the liver, you need to be asking yourself what structures supply the liver and how would I be able to ligate those structures in order to stop that bleeding. Now, in terms of motor vehicular accidents, what normally happens, especially in Grenada, because we drive on the right side, on the left side of the road, the driver, if being hit the broadside, one of the organs to be damaged is the liver. If he's hit on the left side, like in the American society, one of the organs to be damaged is going to be the spleen. Now, bleeding from that liver is going to fall, or I should say collect, in the most declave or lowest point in the abdomen, and that is going to be the hepatorenal recess. Okay? Um, cirrhosis of the liver, which is one of the things that is very prevalent, especially in our societies, because of alcohol, you have destruction of the hepatocytes. They become fibrosed, and we will see as the lecture goes on, we need to have blood going through the liver because it needs to be detoxified, and once there is blockage of that flow, it means that we are going to cause retrograde flow. We're going to increase the hydrostatic pressure in the venous system, and we're going to have a series of clinical manifestations. And those, those series of clinical manifestations are going to be secondary to what we call portal hypertension. So portal hypertension is not a clinical entity on, into itself, but basically what happens to the vasculature to produce all of the clinical symptoms that we uh, see in the different liver pathologies. Everybody clear so far? Any questions? Good. So, are you going to take over from me? So we have some good news. Dr. Opadia said class will be dismissed. No, I'm just joking. Um, she said, <laughs> she actually said, she actually said that the quiz is going to be extended. You're going to have a little bit more time because the internet is down. All right? Good. <laughs> that I don't know. Okay? All right, good. So let's continue. Let's continue, guys. Let's continue so that we can finish. All right, guys. Let's continue. Settle down. Good. So we can see that we are looking at the posterior aspect of the liver, and there are certain landmarks that we need to appreciate, especially when you get down to the lab. One of the main ones is going to be this structure here, which is called the gallbladder. So the gallbladder is going to be in a fossa, which is called the fossa for the gallbladder. Here we can see the IVC, the inferior vena cava, as well as the hepatic arteries. Now, immediately, you should realize that we have this structure here, which is called the porta hepatis, and we spoke about the structures which run in that porta hepatis. That porta hepatis is going to be covered by the hepatoduodenal ligament, and in the porta hepatis, you're going to have structures such as the portal vein, the hepatic artery, as well as the bile duct. Okay? 
Now, so dividing the liver into the right and left lobes, we have this fissure here, which is called the left sagittal fissure. And it contains the falciform ligament as well as the remnants of the ductus venosus. So everything to the right of that is going to be considered the right lobe of liver. Now, we are going to have another artificial, I shouldn't say artificial, but anatomical um, division. So we have this lobe here, which is associated with the IVC called the caudate lobe, and another lobe which is associated with the gallbladder, which is called the quadrate lobe. Now, this diagram gives you the impression that it is just one flat surface. But from your anatomical knowledge, you would realize that the quadrate lobe is actually inferior and anterior. Whereas the caudate lobe is actually posterior and superior. Now, sometimes what happens is that when you ask students which one is associated with what, they say caudate, quadrate, so they kind of confuse you. Now, for multiple choice, especially if you forget, you have to remember that the IVC, C for cava, C for caudate. You have the gallbladder associated with the quadrate lobe. So those of you who like very nice clothes, especially the men, you have GQ. So remember, gallbladder, quadrate lobe. Okay, so that's how you remember it. So as you can see, the portahepatis is going to divide those two lobes, so I should say divide the right lobe, as well as the two fissures, the right sagittal fissure and the left sagittal fissure, is going to anatomically define two of the lobes, the caudate lobe and the quadrate lobe. Okay? Now, sometimes what happens, especially when you get into surgery, you would realize that the clinicians or the surgeons, they are going to have their own division of the liver based on its function. And sometimes what happens is that they can actually divide the liver into which branches of the hepatic artery, the, uh, I should say, which branches or which lobes the hepatic arteries supply. And we're going to see a very, very important principle where this is actually used and it becomes very important, especially when dealing with pathologies of the liver. So this is what we are talking about. So you would realize that we have different segments of the liver. I should say different numbers and different segments. And all I want you to take away from this is, one, you don't have to remember all of the segments, but you must remember that the segment, because you have arteries that do not anastomose, you have veins that do not, I should say not anastomose, but they hardly anastomose. There's very minimal anastomosis between the two. There's very minimal connection between these vessels, the arteries, the veins, and the ducts, you can actually take out a lobe of the liver or a section of the liver or a segment of the liver without actually um, interrupting the blood supply to other parts of the liver. So this is what I want you to take away from this slide. Those of you who are, ace, who are very, very obsessive compulsive, you can learn it, but actually the actual numbering of the segments is not... Uh, objective of the course. So let's look at some of the ligaments. So we spoke about the falciform ligament, which helps attaches the liver to the anterior abdominal wall. We're going to talk about some others that will help fix it to the posterior wall or diaphragm. So imagine that you are looking in the abdomen. So we've removed the abdomen and we're looking from the inside. So here we can see the falciform ligament the ligamentum teres hepatis. So this actually anchors it or helps it attach to the anterior abdominal wall. Now, we also saw some of the other um, recesses because of the reflection of the peritoneum. We have a left and right subphrenic space. Subphrenic, phrenic, because you're talking about the diaphragm, so the space before, below the diaphragm. And you have this ligament here, the, which is called the falciform ligament, and that falciform ligament is going to separate those spaces into right and left spaces. Continuing, what we realize now that we are looking at the still looking at the posterior aspect of the liver. So just imagine you have the diaphragm. So here is a cut edge of peritoneum going all around. 
at this area here because peritoneum arrived at this area and then reflected this area here is devoid of peritoneum so that's why we call it the bare area of the liver devoid of peritoneum we call it bare or naked because there is no peritoneal lining attached to this part of the liver so this these two you have the superior and inferior coronary uh, ligaments now coronary doesn't mean heart it means round or crown to go around so we can see that these two coronary ligaments the superior and the inferior they come together in and they make on the right side the right triangular ligament you can see it forming more or less like a triangle and on the left side it forms the left triangular ligament and these ligaments also help um, support the liver along the posterior aspect of the abdominal wall we have other ligaments that we spoke about we spoke about the hepatoduodenal ligament and its importance we said that running from the, the liver to the stomach we have two ligaments the hepatogastric ligament and contained in the hepatogastric ligament you have the vessels which run along the lesser curvature of the stomach and contained in the hepatoduodenal ligament we have the portal triad now very important and we are going to see that or we have seen that already once you have and you hear me repeating myself again once you have any type of bleeding pathology in the liver one of the areas that you can actually compress will be the hepatoduodenal ligament and that is called a pringle maneuver it actually helps abate any type of bleeding within the liver the pringle maneuver it's actually on another slide okay so it's on this slide here so basically what is going to happen because the blood it's coming from the liver is going to first collect in the lesser sac of the peritoneum and it's going to communicate with the hepatorenal recess through an opening which is called the omental foramen these are the things that we would have seen before so there's your omental foramen the blood is going to collect in this pouch here which is called the lesser sac we spoke about lesser sac and we spoke about the greater sac lesser sac being behind the stomach and everything else in front of the stomach will be greater sac so lesser sac everything else in the abdominal cavity or in the peritoneal cavity i should say will be greater sac so let's look at the arterial supply to the liver now going back to first principles the liver is a foregut structure so it therefore means that the artery that's going to supply the liver because it's a foregut structure is going to be the celiac trunk there are different branches of the celiac trunk we spoke about them earlier you have the left gastric you have the splenic and here you have the common hepatic the common hepatic is going to divide into a proper hepatic or i should say gives off a proper hepatic which is going to give you a left and a right hepatic artery and that is going to provide blood supply arterial blood 30 percent of the arterial or the blood supply to the liver the next 70 percent is going to come from the which artery the portal the portal vein i just said which artery you guys are not asleep the portal vein all right now the reason why i say that is because generally in all of the other structures that you would have studied you see that arteries supply the organ and veins drain the organ in this case you have the liver being supplied by two structures it's supplied by the artery as well as the portal vein which brings all that blood from the GI tract because we understand from your biochemistry lectures that that liver is responsible for detoxification of many of the components of the blood that is coming from the GI tract right so the liver is now going to drain into the IVC via the hepatic veins now be very very careful do not interchange the portal vein 
and the hepatic veins. They are two different things. They are not the same. Now, generally, sometimes students say, okay, it's portal is going to the liver. All right? You have to remember, portal is taking blood from the GI tract, whereas hepatic veins are actually take, training the products of metabolism from the liver into the IBC. Now, if you have any type of cancer of the liver, because it's a foregut structure, the first place where the lymph is going to collect, or you're going to have signs of metastatic cancer, is going to be around the celiac nodes. All right? So you remember the arterial supply. Lymphatics follow the arteries. Everybody's clear so far? Good. So let's look at the biliary apparatus. So you spoke about bile and what it does. It has its role in the emulsification of fats. So here we're going to see the anatomy of the biliary tree. So you have bile being produced in the bile caniculi, and then it gets into the second part of the duodenum via the biliary apparatus. So you have the right and left hepatic ducts, and what they do is that they unite and they form what we call a common hepatic duct. Two ducts unite to form a common hepatic duct. Then you have the bile going through the cystic duct and then getting into the gallbladder where it is concentrated and stored. Now, once you have the signal for the contraction of the gallbladder, for bile to enter the second part of the duodenum, what happens is that this bile then travels from the gallbladder through the cystic duct. It unites with the common hepatic duct, or I should say at the point where the cystic duct unites with the common hepatic duct, there is a ch name change, and now this is called the bile duct. All right? And bile now would get into the second part of the duodenum. But before it gets there, it is joined by the main pancreatic duct, which has different enzymes for the metabolization of fats as well as proteins, some lipids. And what you're going to have happening is opens into the ampulla of vata in the second part of the duodenum to help with the digestion of the material that you have in entering the second part of the duodenum. Now, very important is that you can have any type of manifestations either in the gallbladder, the cystic duct, the common bile duct, I'm sorry, the common hepatic duct, the common bile duct, as well as the um, ampulla of water. So these are the areas that you can actually put some stars by because these are the areas where we can have pathological processes taking place and the anatomy or the understanding of the anatomy becomes very important when you are faced with these pathologies. So let's look at the gallbladder. So we spoke about the biliary apparatus. Now we're going to talk about the gallbladder proper. So we spoke about where the gallbladder is located in the fossa, the fossa of the gallbladder. It's basically there where the bile is stored. It is pear-shaped, and it has a fondus, a body, and a neck. And as I said, it receives uh, bile where it is actually concentrated. It receives bile from the liver where it is actually concentrated and stored. Now, this is very important because there is a maneuver which is called Murphy's sign. And you must know that the gallbladder just actually projects just below the right costal margin in the mid-clavicular line. Now, once there is any type of inflammation of the bladder, the walls become inflamed. You have the size of the gallbladder becoming greater. It means, therefore, that that position is going to increase and therefore, you should be able to palpate the gallbladder in a pathological process. So once we have inflammation of the gallbladder, it is called cholecystitis. And we're going to talk about how that happens in the next slide. So you'd have learned about the different types of cholesterol of, of, of gallstones. You have the cholesterol stones and the bile stones. But this is not the actual object of this lecture. What I would like to say is that you would have... Let's say, for instance, you have uh, excess of cholesterol or bile salts. First of all, because of stasis, you're going to have something called sludge. Then this sludge material is going to form stones. And 
there is something called biliary colic. So this is a sac. And as you can just imagine, every time there is need for bile, you have contraction of the sac. It makes contact with one of these stones and it produces muscular spasms. Now, biliary colic is what we call, uh, it's a type of pain that is waxing and waning. It gets intense, very intense, increasing the intensity, and then it stops. Then it increases intensity again and then stops. And this is just basically due to the smooth muscle contacting or the walls of the gallbladder contacting these stones and producing these types of symptoms. It is not to be confused with cholecystitis. Cholecystitis means inflammation of the sac. In this case, what generally happens, there is a blockage of the cystic duct. There is buildup of pressure. The sac becomes inflamed, and then we can get the clinical sign, which is called Murphy sign. Generally, that type of patient normally presents with fever. The have the pain which is constant it's different from the biliary colic this type of pain is constant in the right upper quadrant and we call that acute cholecystitis now as i said the fundus of the gallbladder because of inflammation is now going to touch the subdiaphragmatic parietal peritoneum and once you have the touching of that subdiaphragmatic parietal peritoneum you're going to have sharp pain and that pain because of the dermatome is also going to be referred to the right shoulder so we have two types or two phases of the gallbladder or, or i should say cholecystitis the first phase is where you have distension and because it's a foregut structure you will generally feel that pain first in the epigastric region then as the gallbladder expands and touches the subdiaphragmatic parietal peritoneum you're going to have irritation, and that is going to give you a specific pain, which is actually going to be referred to the right shoulder. Okay, something happened there? Okay, cool. All right. No internet, so. So the other obstruct, the other pathology that we're going to talk about is the obstruction or compression of the bile duct, common bile duct, by stones or as you can realize here you have the head of the pancreas now generally what happens you need to remember or i should say bile is going to come down here and it gets into the second part of the duodenum and because of all of the biochemistry you'd realize you have it being excreted into the stool it's responsible or it helps in the coloration of the stool and if you have excess bile spilling into the blood you have something which is called jaundice so any type of obstruction in this area here is going to give you jaundice as what as well as clay colored stool and very very dark urine all of the biochemistry you would have learned about if you have any problems i can explain that to you afterwards now with anything else any type of stasis is going to produce bacterial proliferation and once that happens it means that you can have cholangiogenitis, which is basically the inflammation of the entire um, biliary tree. So at this stage, all we would want you to remember is where the stones are actually lodged, and we are not going to ask you the different names. When you get to surgery, you would learn about the different names for the different pathologies. In this case, you're going to have it where if it lodges at the ampulla vata, you're going to have problems with bile secretion as well as pancreatic secretion. And you also have to remember that the pancreatic enzymes are very lytic and they can actually produce a secondary pancreatitis, what you may call an auto-ingestion of the pancreas because the enzymes are not passing into the second part of the duodenum. All right. So one of the ways in which we actually investigate the biliary tree is something called ERCP, which is called Endoscope Retrograde Coliangi Pancreatography. All right, try saying that when you had a couple of drinks. Very, very long word. Most, most medical practitioners, they mention it as ERCP. So what normally happens is that this patient, an endoscope is passed through the esophagus, down through the stomach, and here you can see it being passed through the duodenum. 
it arrives at the ampulla of vata and then dye is actually injected into the biliary or i should say into the ampulla of vata and it actually maps out the biliary tree for you so here you can see it actually mapping out the bile duct and this is the pancreatic duct and because of that because the dye is actually injected what you can see happening is that you can actually map out some of the obstruction and locate the obstruction and another thing that you can do is actually treat the obstruction there's a little um, um, probe or I should say a little instrument that can actually take the gallstone out and actually help relieve the patient's symptoms so right here you can see uh, ERCP and if you look very very carefully what has happened is that this probe it injects dye into the biliary tree and here you can see the dye actually passing around one two three four five six stones so in this case we can actually get the instrument push it through the common bile duct remove the stones and thereby actually deflate the inflammation or the dilation of the biliary tree so this is what it looks like this is what a normal one looks like I've actually updated the slide so that you can have all of the different parts of the biliary tree identified for you on ERCP so here you can see the left hepatic duct so let's orient ourselves this is the vertebral column if you look right here you can see part of the liver delivers on the right side so the so the duct that's associated with the right side is going to be the right hepatic duct. Here you have the left hepatic duct. Here is the common. So left and right unite to form the common. You can see a little bit of the bile actually trickling through. So this here has to be the gallbladder. So this duct has to be the cystic duct. And then here you can see it uniting to form the common bile duct, which actually gets, if you look very, very carefully, you can actually see the duodenum. So this is the second part of the duodenum. Here you can see a little bit of the third part, fourth part of the duodenum. And we can actually trace this duct here, which is called the pancreatic duct. All right? So this is a slide that you should know because you can be questioned on it. So like everything else, if the gallbladder becomes inflamed, especially in cholecystitis, you have the inflammation of the gallbladder. Sometimes what happens because the you have fatty you have a fatty meal, the gallbladder is actually stimulated to secrete bile. Normally happens in the fat fair forty female person. And what we will need to do is remove that gallbladder. Now one of the arteries that we need to remove or identify most of the times will be this artery here which is called a cystic artery so in order to find a cystic artery for the removal of the gallbladder there are several boundaries that we need to take into consideration so one of the things that I want you to put there is that superiorly I just have liver or liver was just on your side superiorly you have the liver as you can see here laterally you have the cystic duct and medially you have the common hepatic duct as you can see here and that triangle forms a triangle of calo all right so that triangle of calo is what you look for you identify the cystic artery you ligate the cystic artery and you take out the gallbladder let's look at the spleen so the spleen is actually located in the left hypochondrial region it like the liver it has a visceral surface and an thoracic surface or rib uh, a surface that is attached to the ribs or we will call a diaphragmatic surface on the visceral surface just like the liver we have instead of having the porta hepatis here we have the hilum once again we have the area where we have blood vessels entering the actual structure and here you can see the splenic artery which is in red and the splenic vein now these are just the dimensions of the spleen where but i also what i want you to remember it's actually where it's located between the ninth and 11 ribs so it means therefore on the left side the spleen once it gets in contact with any type of traumatic event it can actually rupture 
Now, the spleen is not as solid as the liver. The, you would have learned in histology because of its histological makeup. The spleen is a little bit more friable. So it means, therefore, that it requires less force to actually cause splenic rupture. And because there's a lot of blood stored in the spleen, you can just imagine that splenic rupture is very, very life-threatening, and it is a medical emergency. Taking a closer look at the spleen, so we're going to look at some of the structures which is associated with the spleen. So in the ligaments that we spoke about, we normally said that there were blood vessels which travel in those ligaments. So we have one ligament, one such ligament called the spinorenal ligament or the leonorenal ligament, which we can see right here. Okay, And then we have one that is associated with the stomach, which is called the gastrosplenic ligament. And can anybody tell me which arteries are going to travel in the gastrosplenic ligament? The short gastrics. Okay. Now, we also have one which is associated with the lesser curvature of the stomach. Could anybody, sorry, the greater curvature of the stomach. Could anybody tell me, or I should say the omentum associated with the, lesser, with the greater curvature of the stomach as well as the omentum. Could anybody tell me which artery is that? The left gastromental. Okay. The right gastromental comes off of what? Hmm? The gastroduodenal. Okay. And we said that they make an anastomosis around the greater curvature of the stomach. Now, one of the other things that we need to remember is that the tail of the pancreas is actually associated with the spleen. I think that's all that I have to say on this one. So let's look at the portal vein. The portal vein is very, very important because, as I said, it drains all of the nutrients from the GI tract. So we're going to look at its formation. So orienting ourselves, here we have the portal vein, we have the IVC, which is posterior to that. Here we have the aorta, and we have, this is the spleen, so this is draining the spleen, will be the splenic vein. So this portal vein is formed by the union of the splenic vein with the superior mesenteric vein. The inferior mesenteric vein drains into the splenic vein, and then both of them they then unite with the superior mesenteric vein and posterior to the head of the pancreas, the head and neck of the pancreas, we have the formation of the portal vein. Now, this portal vein is then going to divide into left and right veins, portal veins, and they are going to drain into the parenchyma of the liver, and then that parenchyma is going to be drained by the hepatic veins. So in this case, we have vein draining into the liver, and then the area or the parenchyma of the liver being drained by the hepatic veins. Now, almost immediately you should be thinking to yourself, or you would have known from histology, that once you have any type of fibrosis, what's going to happen is that there's going to be retrograde flow, and that retrograde flow is going to build, uh, cause intraluminal pressure, and that intraluminal pressure is going to be transferred to the smaller veins. Now, morphologically, you must remember that these veins, as we will see in a little while, they belong to the caval system. So embryologically, the caval system drained all of the body wall structures. And the portal system drained all of the gut, uh, all of the gut um, tissues. There is an anastomosis between the portal system and the caval system. And that's why we call it a portal-caval anastomosis. Right. So let's look at the portal caval anastomosis. Now, as I said, you have big veins. So the portal vein is morphologically designed to drain large amounts of blood from the GI tract. The other veins, as you would see in a little while, they belong to the caval system. So it means, therefore, if there is any type of obstruction in the portal system, the alternative route to get back to the inferior vena cava is going to be via the caval system. If we look at the liver primarily, we realize that the portal vein enters the liver, metabolic processes take place, and then it is drained by the hepatic veins, and those hepatic veins drain into the cava, the inferior vena cava. 
right? So as I said, if there is blockage of the portal system, there is retrograde flow, and the way in which the blood tries to get back to the inferior vena cava will be using tributaries of the caval system. Those tributaries are not morphologically designed to handle that volume of blood, and as a result of which, these tributaries are going to get enlarged, they're going to get dilated, and once intraluminal pressure exceeds the amount that the vessel can hold, you're going to have a rupture of those veins, and you're going to have bleeding, or you can have varices, as the case may be. We're going to talk about three main ones, or three main dilatations of these veins, which you should know, which are going to be esophageal varices. We're going to talk about caput medusae, and we're going to talk about... Um, hemorrhoids, which are types of varices. Okay? So let's look at the different areas. So just around the lower edge of the esophagus, via the left gastric vein, you're going to have a tributary uh, with the azygous system or the hemiazygous system of veins. Since those veins are very small, these esophageal veins or hemiazygous veins, they are the alternative route to get the blood back to the cava, they become enlarged, and as you can see, they can actually rupture, and we get hematemesis. So a case is going to come to you, or a patient is going to come to you in the future, whereby they have esophageal veins, you, or varices, I should say. These are dilated veins. Their walls are very, very weak. You can just imagine after a meal, somebody eating crackers, somebody eating some type of food that contains sharp pieces, let's say chicken bone, it ruptures or lyses that vein. You have a flow of blood, least resistance, and there's copious amount of blood. The patient vomits copious amount of blood, and that is called hematemesis. Now, the other one that we saw here at the level of the rectum were the rectal, we're looking back at the anatomy, the lower end of the anal canal, you have the superior part of the rectum being drained by the superior rectal vein, and that drains into the inferior vena cava. The middle and inferior, that drains into the caval system, the internal iliac vein. Now, once you have any type of back pressure from the liver, what's going to happen is that blood is going to flow in a retrograde direction. Because there's an anastomosis, these plexi, venous plexuses, they communicate, they become dilated, they become engorged, and that gives you the symptomology of the rectal hemorrhoids that we see in patients who have portal hypertension. The other one that we have to look at is the umbilical area. Now, veins along the ligamentum teres, which is found in the free edge of the falciform ligament, they contain para-umbilical veins. And what happens is that these para-umbilical veins, they open up, they are tributaries of the inferior as well as the superior epigastric vessels, and they can be found in the skin. And because they radiate around the umbilicus, they form this spider-like um, arrangement, and that is called caput modusae. There are other ones that you should know about, the retroperitoneal organs. We have veins of the colon, duodenum, pancreas, and spleen, and they uh, anastomose with the renal, lumbar, and azygous veins. This is not an object of your course, but I just want you to remember or read that and remember that the three most important ones that you must know and be able to explain are the ones around the esophagus, the ones around the abdominal wall, and the ones in the rectum. And you must be able to make a table and say which are the tributaries from the cable system and which are the tributaries from the portal system and how they get back to the inferior vena cava, how blood from these areas get back to the inferior vena cava and their symptomology. So here you can see the caput moduse, I should say. Um, basically, we're not seeing it here. I don't have a picture of it. But it generally radiates outward. I think you would have seen some pictures in histology uh, based on these type of clinical manifestations. Now, one of the other things that we have is the formation of ascites. Does anybody know how the ascites is formed? Yes? You have portal hypertension, you have increasing hydrostatic pressure, and you have fluid collecting in the 
peritoneal cavity. And we spoke about that also because you have liver damage. I should say the blood is not getting back into the liver. You have albumin not being produced. And also you have to remember that the albumin is responsible for the maintenance of the oncotic pressure. So you have less oncotic pressure within the veins and as a result of which more fluid now escapes into the peritoneal cavity. Yes? Blockage of the portal vein. Yeah, blockage of the portal vein. It get, tries to get back to the IVC and they said because the veins are small and they are not morphologically designed to hold that big amount of blood, they rupture. Okay? All right. So when that happens, there needs to be a way in which we can decompress the system. One of the ways in which we can decompress the system is by making anastomoses, portal cable anastomoses. One of the ways in which we do that is, as we said, let's look at how the portal vein is formed. We said the splenic vein joins, sorry, the inferior mesenteric vein joins the splenic vein, which unites with the formation of the superior mesenteric vein. Those two unite and they form the portal vein. So inferior mesenteric drains into splenic, splenic joins superior mesenteric vein, and they form the portal vein. Now, one of the ways in which we can bypass, as we said, we have retrograde flow. We have all of the blood backing up, let's say, in the splenic vein. We can put a coil in the splenic vein and then make an anastomosis between the splenic vein and the left renal vein. And here you can see the left renal vein is a branch or tributary of the inferior vena cava, and as a result of which you could have some of that blood being shunted away from the portal system into the cable system. Now there are problems with that. One of the complications with this, can anybody tell me one of the complications? If you're shunting blood that hasn't gone through the liver, what is some of the complications? Huh? Buildup of ammonia. Okay, so many times these type of patients would be sent with some type of psychiatric illness or they have, they become unconscious and we have hepatic encephalopathy which is a result of this type of treatment and you can understand why. So this is just a venogram showing you some of the actual vessels. So here you have this here being a superior mesenteric vein, the inferior mesenteric vein, here you have a splenic, they unite to form the portal vein. And here you can see some of the hepatic veins, all right? This is a diagram that I want you to pay much more attention to. This was just put here to help you. You don't have this in your package, so you're not responsible for this, but this is exactly what I want you to remember. So let's look at the pancreas very quickly. So we realize that the pancreas is an exocrine gland as well as an endocrine gland. And here you can see it sitting in the arms of the duodema, as we said. So here you can see the head cradled in the first, second, and third part of the duodenum. And the pancreas, because it is a foregut structure, we would realize that it has its blood supply from the celiac trunk. All right? One of the things that I want you to remember, which is actually on this first slide or on one of the slides, here you have a celiac trunk. And here you can see an anastomosis or the terminal branches of the celiac trunk. We have the anterior and posterior superior pancreatic or duodenal arteries. And I like to think of it as being a terminal branch of the celiac trunk. Coming off of the superior mesenteric, we have another group of vessels, which is going to be the inferior, the anterior and posterior inferior pancreatic or duodenal arteries. So they form an anastomosis around the head of the pancreas. This is also very important because when you get down to the lab, or those of you who would have gone down to the lab, you'd realize that on the superior border of the pancreas, if you're having difficulty, you would have the celiac trunk. And on the inferior border of the pancreas, you're going to have the superior mesentery. So if you get a little bit confused, you can always orient yourself which artery is which. Running on the superior surface of the pancreas and associated with the body and the tail, we have this artery here, which is a very, very tortuous artery, which is going to be the splenic artery. On the inferior edge of the pancreas, very important, 
we have the superior mesenteric artery and vein. So it shows that if you have any type of cancerous process, they can actually compress those veins which form the portal system and then you can also have ascites being formed or portal hypertension, secondary to portal hypertension. All right. So here I spoke about the, the anastomosis between the celiac trunk and the superior mesenteric. And you should also be asking yourself or remembering that there is an anastomosis between the superior mesenteric artery and the inferior mesenteric artery, which is going to be the marginal artery of Drummond. We spoke about the pancreatic ducts. We saw that in embryology, we have a main pancreatic duct and an accessory pancreatic duct. We had two buds. We had a dorsal bud and a ventral bud. We saw how they rotated and the state of affairs when they uh, finalized their rotation and how they sit in the adult pancreas. So the major pancreatic duct, it passes from the tail towards the head, as we can see here, and then it joins the bile duct and it forms the hepatopancreatic ampulla where you can have those secretions being secreted into the second part of the duodenum. All right, like everything else, the pancreas is a very, very fragile organ and it can also be damaged by a very violent blow to the abdomen and as you would realize that you have those lytic enzymes in the pancreas and once those lytic enzymes get into the adjacent tissues, it's very, very bad news, all right? One of the things that we can say for sure is that once you have any type of pancreatic manifestation, it is very, very difficult to treat surgically. That's why pancreatic cancer is very, very dangerous. It takes a very long time to give symptoms because it is retroperitoneal, and by the time you discover that type of cancer, it is actually very, very um, aggressive, and there's very little that you can do in resection of the pancreas. If you do do some type of palliative treatment, let's say chemotherapy, the survival rate is maximum four years. All right? So it's a very, very terrible um, cancer. It's one of the most aggressive cancers that we're going to find. All right, so let's take a break. We're going to come back and do these questions, and then we're going to um, finish the other lecture probably in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. <laughs>